Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The rise of Donald Trump to the White House and his America First platform have created more uncertainty about America's role in the world than at any time in recent decades. From the South China Sea to the Middle East, to the Baltics, Eastern Europe, and Russia, the geopolitical challenges to U.S. power and influence seem increasingly severe, and America's responses to these challenges seem increasingly unsure. To illuminate these and related issues in American grand strategy around the world, today's special edition of the show features an interview with Hal Brands, the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE as we know it here on Massachusetts Avenue. Professor Brands is the author of a new book published by the Brookings Institution Press titled American Grand Strategy in the Age of Trump. After the interview in our Metro Lynn segment, a look at economic development incentives that many state and local governments offer to get corporations such as Amazon and its second headquarters to locate there. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now on with the show. Here's Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, talking with Hal Brands. Thanks, Fred, and welcome, Hal. Thanks for having me, Bill. American grand strategy in the age of Trump. What is grand strategy exactly? How is it defined? So I like to think of grand strategy as the intellectual architecture for foreign policy. So if you actually have a grand strategy, you're not just reacting to events as they happen or sort of taking an ad hoc approach to global affairs. You have a slightly more structured view of what you're trying to accomplish and how you're trying to accomplish it. And so it requires a number of things, a considered view of the international environment and the major trends within that environment, a sense of what your country's highest interests and objectives are, a rank-ordered priority list of what your most important threats are and the most important opportunities to advance your interests. And then this is really where the rubber hits the road, a sense of how you actually allocate limited resources across your various priorities to accomplish the most important ones. And that's really sort of the intellectual calculus that goes into grand strategy. And if you have one, this sort of thing doesn't just happen kind of in an intellectual vacuum. It actually drives decisions you make about when and how to use force, how to allocate economic aid and other types of resources. The thing about grand strategy is it's not written down anywhere. There isn't a book of American grand strategy. So how do you pull this together? It's sort of after the fact, right? Well, it depends. I mean, we have had documents in the past that have been pretty grand strategic. So if you were to go back to NSC 68, for instance, I mean, that's a very grand strategic document back in 1950. I think if you look at some of the stuff that the Nixon-Kissinger team did in their reports on foreign policy in the early 70s or that the Reagan team did during the 1980s, those come close to being grand strategies that are essentially set down on paper. But in some cases, we don't have that. And so I tend to think that grand strategy is not all post hoc, that that you can actually go back and see it Mm -hmm. in real time. But often what that requires is comparing sort of the words that administration officials speak, whether in speeches or in publicly available documents like the national security strategy, and then seeing the extent to which those ideas are or are not reflected in actual policies that are carried out. You write that Trump represents an inflection point in American grand strategy. What was American grand strategy before this inflection point in the largest terms? You can think of grand strategy as happening on a couple of different levels. And so one level would be sort of the level of a presidential administration. So what are the key motivating ideas that Barack Obama has that that shape American policy toward the world? 
In the case of the United States, you can also think of it on even a higher level, which is that if you go to a very broad level of focus, there's been a significant amount of continuity in American foreign policy since World War II. And so at sort of the 35,000-foot level, the first-order judgments we've made about how to interact with the world haven't changed a ton over time. Uh, We've believed that the best way that the United States can be secure and prosperous in an interdependent environment is to help like-minded countries be secure and prosperous. We've maintained our alliance structures over 70 years, a global military footprint, commitment to promoting free trade, and so on and so forth. How we've gone about doing that has changed from administration to administration, and there have been vicious policy disputes over specific issues. But at that level, there's been more continuity than change. And I think that sort of in November 2016, we hit two different inflection points with respect to that strategy. So one was going to happen regardless of who was elected president. This was simply the fact that the world was becoming more difficult, more challenging, and so it was going to be harder to maintain this grand strategy in the future than it had been in the past. If you look at the rise of great power rivals like China and Russia, if you look at the global democratic recession and a variety of other things that are basically challenging American grand strategy on an international level. But then the second inflection point was the election of Donald Trump. We'll talk a little bit more, I'm sure, about the extent to which Trump's policies have actually reflected his rhetoric. But at the level of ideas, at the level of what he thinks, he clearly doesn't buy into this post-World War II grand strategy in the same way. He has a much more sort of pre-World War II approach to global affairs, at least at the level of his own ideas. And so there are big questions about not just whether the United States can continue to implement this, what I think has been a pretty successful grand strategy, but whether the leader of the United States actually wants to. And you argue in the book, too, that these ideas that Trump has brought forward since January of 2017 when he was inaugurated is a grand strategy itself. The way I put it is that it's kind of like what Trotsky is reputed to have said about war, right? You may not be interested in grand strategy, but grand strategy is nonetheless interested in you. And you could be the most undisciplined, erratic, incoherent leader. And I think in some ways Donald Trump checks all of those boxes. But decisions that you make still have a grand strategic impact because they still impact how the United States interacts with the world. And they have impacts on how we allocate resources and that sort of thing. And so grand strategy, you might not say that every president has a grand strategy, but every president makes decisions with major grand strategic significance. And so that's the argument I make about Donald Trump, that he can sometimes be all over the place with respect to what he wants on a particular policy issue. But nonetheless, the decisions that he's making, and equally important, the ideas he's thinking and the words that he's speaking are having an impact on America's grand strategic relationship with the world. What would you frame as, say, maybe the three or four essential components of this grand strategy that Trump's articulating? I think of it a little bit differently. I mean, basically, the way I would say it is that since Trump has become president, his policies have been less radical than the rhetoric that he espoused on the campaign trail back in 2015 and 2016. And so if you were to go back and tally up all of the uh, rather unorthodox ideas that he expressed starting a trade war, leaving some of our allies defenseless, encouraging nuclear proliferation, bringing back torture, so on and so forth, and did sort of two lists. One, here are the promises he's fulfilled, and here are the promises he hasn't fulfilled. You'll see that the list of promises he hasn't fulfilled is much, much longer than the list of promises he has fulfilled. And on a number of issues, his policy has actually been fairly mainstream, if you look at his Afghanistan policy, just as one example. And there are a variety of reasons for this, and they have mostly to do with the constraints that Trump has faced. These are constraints from his advisors, from the Congress, from the courts in some cases, or just from international reality. 
But the fact is that he hasn't simply blown up American foreign policy overnight, as I think some people feared back in January 2017. So that's one part of it. But then the second part is that Trump has actually still managed to have a pretty profound effect on U.S. foreign policy because what he's done is really taken dead aim at a number of the more intangible factors that have made U.S. foreign policy effective since World War II. And I would include here everything from the idea that the United States stands for something beyond its own naked self-interest in foreign affairs to the idea that the United States and the American president should be a foremost promoter of democracy and human rights to the incredible soft power the United States has built up over the years. And we can talk about this in more detail, but I think Trump has actually been pretty destructive on all these levels. And so there may not have been an explosion, but there's a slow bleed of American diplomatic effectiveness going on as a result of this. Yeah, it seems to have turned on its head George Kennan's dictum that America should lead by example, and the example that America is creating at this moment is not an example that others would want to emulate, it seems. We were talking about doing this book. We knew that Trumpian foreign policy would be a moving target in many ways. One way in which it has changed most dramatically recently is in the composition of the people who are holding major posts. Rex Tillerson is out as Secretary of State. H.R. McMaster is out as head of the National Security Council. What do the appointments of Mike Pompeo to state and John Bolton to the National Security Council mean for Trump's foreign policy, do you think? So one of the arguments I made in the book, which was published in January, was that it's entirely possible that the blowups we've been expecting on major issues just haven't happened yet. And so it could be, for instance, that Trump will get tired of the NAFTA renegotiations with Mexico and Canada at some point during 2018 mm-hmm. and just decide to withdraw from that agreement. You could see something similar with the Iran agreement. And I actually think that in some cases, the personnel changes we're seeing are making some of those blowups more likely. The example I would give here would be the Iran nuclear deal, where the pattern from 2017 was very much that Trump's advisors were trying to constrain him on Iran and telling him that you may not like the nuclear deal, but it's better than the alternatives. And so you shouldn't just very rapidly withdraw from the deal. Can you just briefly describe the Iran nuclear deal? Sure. So the Iran nuclear deal was the deal that was signed in 2015 between the United States, Iran, and a number of other major powers, which basically limited and rolled back Iran's nuclear program in a variety of respects. And one of the critiques that a number of people have had of this agreement is that it's not as tough as it might have been and that some of the provisions will sunset, they'll phase out over a period of 8 to 15 years. And so Iran may be unconstrained after that. Uh, at least this is the critique. And, and Trump himself has long been a critic of this deal. He likes to say it's the worst deal that was ever done. And so he's clearly wanted to get out of it from day mm-hmm. one. But throughout 2017, his advisors really resisted that and pushed back and basically prevented him from doing it a couple of times and then pushed him into an effort to try to renegotiate the deal in some way, which is still ongoing right now. The difference, though, is that Rex Tillerson was a major proponent of staying in the deal in a way that Mike Pompeo was not. John Bolton is very hawkish on Iran, has called for regime change, has talked about tearing up the Iran deal. And so if the policies that these advisors propose within the administration are anything close to the positions they've been associated with in the past, you would have to think that the odds of the United States withdrawing from the deal or imposing unacceptable conditions on it are probably higher now than they were, say, three months ago. What does it mean that Trump also relies on informal advisors, such as Lou Dobbs, who was brought in on speakerphone at the White House to comment on on trade issues? How important are advisors to Trump in making his decisions, I guess, is what I would really want to get at now that we've gone from Tillerson to Pompeo, from McMaster to Bolton? So they are and they aren't. And I mean, they aren't in the sense that you just talked about this. 
where Trump gets his information is utterly unpredictable. And so the ideas that he can come up with can be utterly unpredictable as a result. Uh, And this is something he's done throughout his presidency where he has basically brought in all sorts of unorthodox sources of advice, whether from Breitbart or from other sources, to help him think through important decisions. And it looked for a while like John Kelly, the chief of staff, had managed to crack down on the outside flows of information a little bit. The effectiveness of that strategy appears to have ebbed. And so when that happens and the president may be getting advice from Lou Dobbs or somebody else who is on TV in addition to his national security advisor and his secretaries of state and defense, that indicates that the influence of sort of the more formal advisors may be diluted in some respects. But on the other hand, in some ways, Trump is actually more dependent on his advisors, or at least has been up to this point, than other presidents. Because just to put it very frankly, he knows so little about the business of being president. He knows so little about foreign policy that advisors who can sort of shape the options that are presented to him can have a great deal of effect. And I think this is one of the reasons why Trump was relatively restrained during his first year is that he actually understood that he knew very little about a lot of these issues and so was willing to defer to people like Jim Mattis who had more expertise and experience. The question is whether that's going to continue. And I, I think what we've seen is that Trump is actually feeling like he's more comfortable and confident in the presidency these days. And so he may be more willing to bust through the restraints that have been put on him than before. That was the question I was actually going to come to is about Jim Mattis himself, the Secretary of Defense. How pivotal a role will he play going forward? Just from reading news reports, one gets the sense that he's played a pivotal role thus far, not only in terms of what might be called bad outcome avoidance, but also in trying to educate the president about a number of the things the United States does in the world and why they're important, American alliances, for instance. But if you try to read the tea leaves now, it certainly seems as though Mattis is going to be more isolated on certain issues, probably on North Korea and Iran, where he's now dealing with two empowered hawks and Bolton and Pompeo, perhaps on other issues as well. And I think if we're right in guessing that these personnel changes and some of the policy changes we've seen over the past couple months show a President Trump who is feeling empowered and less constrained, then he may be less deferential to his Secretary of Defense as well. One of the things you mentioned in the book that was part of the inflection point that would have been in place even without the election of Trump that shows a change is going to occur in the post-war sense of how things have worked with America and the world is the return of great power politics, the rise of China and Russia. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and what you see happening in the next few years perhaps? Sure. So for about 20 years after the Cold War, 15 to 20 years after the Cold War, we were living through a historical anomaly in that great power competition. So basically geopolitical competition between the largest and most powerful actors in the international system was more muted than it had been at any time in at least a century and a half. And this was for a variety of reasons, but the biggest reason just simply had to do with the fact that the United States and its allies were so dominant economically and geopolitically that even if a country like Russia didn't like the expansion of NATO during the 1990s, there wasn't a whole lot it could do about it. Even if China wanted to establish itself as the principal power in East Asia, there wasn't much it could do to advance that mission as long as the U.S. Navy was still sitting there maintaining the balance of power. What's happened over the past five to ten years is that both the material balance of power has shifted as Russia has come back from the depths of its post-Cold War weakness as China has continued to experience explosive economic growth and explosive expansion of its military potential. But the psychological balance of power has also shifted as a result of things like 
unsatisfying U.S. involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, the 2008 financial crisis. These things have just promoted a global perception, which is actually greater than the reality that the United States is in decline and perhaps no longer able or willing to uphold key regional balances and play the traditional role that it's played. And so as a result of this, you're seeing countries like Iran and Russia and China, basically authoritarian countries that were never fully reconciled to the post-Cold War order. They're now using their power to push back against that order in more specific ways, whether that's in the South China Sea in the case of China, whether that's in Ukraine and elsewhere in the case of Russia, whether it's throughout the Middle East in the case of Iran. Has your thinking shifted at all from where it was when you began working on this book? It has in one way, in the sense that when I started writing the essays that ultimately came together in this book, I was assuming that it was going to be President Hillary Clinton uh, in 2017, I think, like like most other people in mm-hmm. D.C. And, and so I was very much thinking that what policy changes we would have would be changes at the margin rather than changes at the core of what the United States does in the world. And obviously, that's gone out the window now. And we're having much more fundamental debates about America's purpose, its ambitions, its role in the world today than we have at any time in at least a quarter century. And so in some ways, that was actually fortuitous for the writing of the book, because I think what the book tries to do is to flag six or seven of these big fundamental questions in American grand strategy. And it's more interesting to debate those questions at a time when they're actually up for debate in the political realm and in the real world instead. Now, I'm not exactly thrilled that we're having these debates in the way that we're having them. And so I'm I'm reminded of what Tim Geithner said about the financial crisis, that this would be fascinating if it weren't happening to us. And I very much get that sense from, from looking at the news each day. But that's one way in which my thinking evolved. I would say the other thing, which I think I kind of figured out as I was writing the final chapter, has to do with this question of whether Trump was likely to moderate or to become more radical over time. And I initially thought back in the the early part of 2017 that he was likely to moderate over time because most presidents do and because Trump in particular had proposed such outlandish ideas in a lot of ways that that surely he was going to come back to reality once he became president. And that certainly was the story of the first year in a lot of ways. But what I write in the book and what I've written in a few other places as well is that I actually think he's going in the other direction now, that as he becomes more empowered and confident – as he gets tired of his advisors saying no to him, and as we get closer to the 2018 midterms when he starts to feel more political pressure to deliver on some of his campaign promises on things like trade, on things like the Iran deal, he's going to be more attracted to the sort of bold, unpredictable departure for which he's become known. And so I think we're actually already seeing this a little bit on trade. American policy has become more protectionist in 2018 than it was in 2017. I don't think it's at all unlikely that we might find ourselves getting out of NAFTA at some time in the next year. You could see it on the Iran nuclear deal. You could see it on a number of other things. Could you see a moment like Gorbachev and Reagan at Reykjavik where they both agreed to dismantle nuclear weapons, a similar moment between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump when they meet possibly later this year? I think the odds of that are vanishingly small. I actually think there's less than 50 percent chance that Trump and Kim will actually meet Mm -hmm. uh, because I think this was something that was agreed to on the spur of the moment. None of Trump's advisors liked it. It wasn't even confirmed from the North Koreans that they had issued the invitation. It was relayed through the South Koreans. And so it may very well happen, but it may not. I think, I hope we'll get a good outcome out of it. And at the very least, I hope it lowers the tensions and the temperature a little bit on the Korean Peninsula. But the fact is that the North Koreans have made pretty clear over the past 25 years what they really want are nuclear weapons and the ability to deliver them. And so it's a little bit mind-boggling to think that they would get this close to the finish line 
and then give up the capability they've been developing for more than a quarter century. So we'll pull back a little bit here for a final question. Prognosis for America and the world. Do you think the system is too entrenched, too resilient, and America too big to fail? So the argument I make in the book, and one that I very much believe, is that we can get through a few years of this in the sense that the United States has put so much money in the bank over the past 70 years with respect to global leadership and global influence that that not even somebody like Donald Trump can spin down all that capital so quickly. Our alliances are deeply institutionalized. The international trade system is fairly resilient. And you can run down the list. And so if it's four years of Trump and then there is sort of a restoration in the sense that let's say you get a Democratic candidate who's pretty mainstream on foreign policy elected, I think everyone will say, look how quickly we can put this behind us. And, And the relevant comparison here, think about how bad US Europe relations were in 2003 and how quickly they returned to normal by about 2006. And so if we get sort of a repudiation of Trump at the ballot box, I think you'll see most American relationships sort of revert to their historical mean fairly quickly. It's a lot different if it's eight years of Trump or if it's, say, eight years of Trump followed by an anti-internationalist candidate from either the right or from the left. So somebody from the Bernie Sanders wing Mm -hmm. of the Democratic Party, for instance. Because if it's eight years or 10 years or 12 years of this, then countries around the world, particularly our allies and partners, really have to start reevaluating whether they can count on the United States to play the stabilizing role it's played for so long. And if they think that the answer to that is no or that it could be no, it's really going to start affecting their behavior. It's going to start affecting the strategic choices they make in ways that we won't find entirely welcome. And so I think the lasting impact of the era of Trump depends a lot on how long that era lasts. Hal, thank you for coming by today to talk with us about your new book, American Grand Strategy in the Age of Trump. Thanks, Bill. You can find American Grand Strategy in the Age of Trump on our website or wherever you like to buy books. Finally today, economic development incentives. Hi, this is Joseph Perella, fellow here at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. In September of last year, Amazon, the world's fourth largest company at the time, announced that it would be constructing a second global headquarters in a North American city. This set off the largest corporate attraction competition in U.S. history. And since then, 238 proposals have been narrowed to 20 shortlisted cities. As part of that competition, Amazon requested each jurisdiction to list their tax incentive programs that would be used to defray the cost of their proposed $5 billion investment. Critics looked askance at a company valued at close to three quarters of a trillion dollars requesting public subsidy, but many cities and states have responded with multi-billion dollar incentive packages. The reality is that economic development incentives are a core part of U.S. economic policy. With state and local governments spending tens of billions of dollars on them each year. Why? Well, the short answer is jobs. Economic developers and elected officials argue that incentives can push businesses towards creating jobs in their city or even within a particular neighborhood in their city that needs them most. And in some instances, that is undoubtedly true, 
but academic economists remain pretty skeptical about an incentives-led economic development approach. This is because incentives are not usually well-targeted to those companies who A, would actually be influenced by an incentive, or B, are conducting activities taxpayers want to be incentivizing, such as paying good wages, investing in job training, or partnering with local community groups or schools. But even the most intense critics, and there are many, acknowledge that incentives could be societally beneficial were they only reserved for those companies whose activities align with the public's interest. The challenge is that we don't know a lot about how incentives are targeted, since that information is rarely publicly available. So given this, Sifan Liu and I partnered with four cities, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, San Diego, and Salt Lake, to analyze five years of their economic development transactions to better understand which firms, industries, and communities actually receive incentives. What we found was both positive and revealed some challenges. On the positive side, we found that across those four cities, incentives go to firms in innovative industries that export outside the local economy and bring wealth back in. Partly as a result, these incentivized industries pay wages that are 25% higher than the economy overall. These are all good things. But addressing economic and racial inclusion through incentives remains a challenge. Black and Hispanic workers, two groups with lower employment rates and income levels on average, remain underrepresented in incentivized industries across those four cities. Because of the amount of taxpayer money on the line, economic development incentives remain a really controversial public policy topic. But cities and states can take steps to make them more transparent and inclusive. First, cities and states can get better at being upfront with their economic and societal objectives and ensure that incentives align with them. This seems really simple, but oftentimes they don't. Second, cities and states can get better about transparently posting the incentives they do provide and then rigorously evaluating what happens to those companies that receive them so that we can better understand what works. And we commend the cities who collaborated with us on this report for doing just that. And finally, cities and states should only reserve incentives for those firms that will actually advance broad-based opportunity. This could be because they pay middle-class wages or because of the activities they conduct, like job training or research and development or local community partnerships. Now, much remains to mainstream these activities in communities across the country. Fortunately, we're observing progress across the country toward a more responsible and rigorous incentives approach in many U.S. cities, signaling a nascent but necessary evolution in the practice of economic development. You can find this report on our website at brookings.edu. Joseph's report with Sifan Liu is titled Examining the Local Value of Economic Development Incentives, Evidence from Four U.S. Cities. And you can listen to more MetroLens commentaries on our SoundCloud channel. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, 
and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. Fred Dews.